Namaste and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast, where we are exploring the mystical in the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. My name is Kilkenny, and today I am brimming with joy to welcome Sianna Sherman, who is an internationally renowned yoga teacher, scintillating storyteller, and luminous speaker at conferences and festivals throughout the world. She is the founder of Rasa Yoga, which is a fusion of asana, yoga poses, mantra, mudra, myth, pranayama, meditation, functional anatomy, tantric yoga philosophy, shadow work, and soul alchemy. Her training includes three decades of study with master yoga teachers and scholars in India and abroad. She has been featured in many publications, including Yoga Journal. She also happens to be one of the most inspiring and eloquent modern mystics I know, so I am Thrilled for our listeners to have her here. Namaste and welcome, Siana, to the Modern Mystic Podcast. <laughs> thank you, Kilkenny, and thank you to the Modern Mystic family, community, and team behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Siana, what does it mean to be a modern mystic to you? Hmm. Well, I think well, I will start with mystic. How about that? And then that can open up into our modern times. A mystic, I often just feel the word mystic and how it relates quite naturally to the word mystery. And the mystic for me is that capacity and that part of ourself that is able to drop in and be inwardly absorbed and to surrender into the great mystery. And in this inner space of being, it's like really dropping in to our beingness and releasing a lot of the agendas and the shoulds and the coulds and the woulds and the priority list, like really like just letting that go, dropping into the great interior and into the inner beingness, that whole vision opens from within and in the in the understanding of the etymology of the word mystic it it tracks itself back to meanings like one who closes the eyes or one who closes the lips or even one who is an initiate and what is the mystic an initiate of but the great inner space that is in relationship with the source and the force that is great mystery. And so what happens in the mystic um, aspect of ourselves, and I believe that we all have this capacity and this aspect within ourselves, that what happens with the, with the mystic is that information, so to speak, is sourced from within. It's like tapping into an embodied wisdom, understanding, an inner, uh, uh, an inner knowingness that isn't 
so related to the outer of, of trying to gain information from outer sources. There is a space that opens up within that is literally so fertile and so waiting for us to make that connection. It's like a whole um, interior castle is great mystic, uh, Saint Teresa of, of Avila. She spoke of the whole interior castle of our being. And so the mystic is tapping into this interior, vast reservoir of the, of the sweetest understanding of life. And through tapping into this, it's that there is an inner strength as well, because the outer circumstances of life, as we know, really vary from, you know, extreme, like, just joy and celebration to the most challenging confrontational uh, situations. And when we go into our power as a mystic, we're able to draw forth from an inner well of wisdom that we drink from this kind of like pure spring water that's deep inside the earth. And it renews our whole vision mind. And we have another understanding of how to face the outer circumstances of our world. And so that's kind of, for me, the essence of mystic, a modern mystic. I think, you know, the the what's important about this is that mystics have long been regarded and with great reverence. And in sometimes that gets highly sacrificed in the modern world that starts, you know, that is so moving so fast and so intensely that it doesn't have time, you know, to, to revere the innermost wisdom because it's just pushing faster than it can pause to listen. And so the modern mystic is an activation in the world right now that is calling people to real presence, to a deep inner listening, to a real reverence for nature. And I would also add to this, like the power of living prayer. And when I say this, um, I mean that it's like the kind of prayer that is from the depth of our being that is exactly the way that is resonant for every single one of us as prayerful beings and that looks and feels and sounds differently for every person but that real authentic power of prayer and blessing energy in this everyday world that is running at lightning speed and chasing after all sorts of things that there is a yoking to the innermost presence of being and that it's absolutely insistent that this is possible and it's the biggest invitation especially when life is moving really fast so that's the modern mystic catching us as we're you know zipping along so to speak <laughs> <laughs> so illuminative and there's so many bright points that you made that I just love. One of them being just how you said so eloquently how the modern mystic path is for anyone and everyone who chooses to walk down it. And we are living in this time of such quickening, such intensity in the way of the speed of everything. And so 
it's part of my birthing this podcast, conversely, right, we need that balancing, like you spoke of, that deep going inward, that pausing, and that's everyone, right? That who would that not benefit? And so I just love how you spoke of that and going into the castle as you said of our being, right? Because when we go into the castle of our being and dig deep into this wellspring of source, within ourselves, then we are more sovereign, right? Mm, Beautiful. (laughs) So you are such an extraordinary storyteller. I believe that stories are medicine. And certainly one of your most remarkable talents is your enchanting storytelling. I remember the first time I heard you teach live, I was totally electrified and riveted by the way you use myth and stories as a gateway into the numinous realms. So would you mind first speaking about the power of storytelling and how you see it acting as a gateway between the mundane quote-unquote life and the magical pathways and portals both inside and outside of ourselves? Mm, Thank you. For me, I I would say that a, a beginning place for me in my orientation in life is a deep remembrance of the power of the soul and the soul journey that all of us are on. It's a very alchemical, soulful journey for every single being. And the language of the soul is one of metaphor and poetry and the mythopoetic, the mythic consciousness. The language of the soul responds and opens and deepens and rises through the gateway of storytelling. The rational mind, it more responds to logic and, you know, getting from point A to B with a clear map. And we need that too. And we are whole beings. We're not just the rational um, from point A to B person on the planet. We are that. And at times that's really what we need. And we are very whole and holistic beings and holographic beings. And so the power of story reaches into uh, the, the language of the soul and it gets us to orient and reorient and open uh, to new ways of being and seeing that we don't necessarily tap into when we're only um, rooted in the rational. So Mm. I think it's, um, I try and remember, it might be Einstein. He said something like intelligence is not just getting, you know, from point A to B, but the mind can just get us from point A to B, but imagination, that's it. It's something about this, like imagination takes us to everywhere. That's the power of the soul. And that's the power of storytelling um, that the intellect and the wisdom of our being is actually hand in hand with the power of our imagination. And this then is the power of storytelling and the power of the of the way of the soul, so to speak. 
Mm. So that's what I might say right now. And I don't have that quote exactly right, but you all can look it up. <laughs> I and- know the quote actually by heart. It says, and, and it's a perfect quote. And I love it because in my soul cast, I always have a quote that I anchor the soul cast in. And so it's so perfect and serendipitous. You said it. Imagination is more important than knowledge. For knowledge is limited to all we know and understand, while imagination embraces the entire world and all there ever will be to know and understand. Perfect. I'm snapping my <laughs> fingers. I'm so happy you have that memorized because I, I haven't thought about that in a long time, but it just uh, surfaced in a big way. Well, yes. it was such a perfect <laughs> download. And I loved um, what you said so brilliantly about the rational mind and the remembrance of the soul because you know how do we engage with children when they're young is to tell stories and they are so in touch right with this part of themselves this inner gps because of them having just been a soul exclusively and then coming into embodiment. And so as we get older, then we get more and more developed in our rational minds. And so many of us, you know, are completely in the rational mind. And so, so much of a part of being a mystic is learning, like you said, in balance to use the rational mind when it makes sense and it serves, but then also to develop this languaging of the soul and inner GPS is how Mm. I like to call it. So, so wonderful. (laughs) So would you be willing, Sianna, to treat our listeners to a story right now? Sure. I'm going to feel into that first for a moment. Mm. Okay. Um, Well, here we go. (laughs) Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, uh, maybe not so long ago, because this story like every other story, just might be happening right now, right here inside of each one of us. There was this mythic, and let's also add mystical bird with extraordinary plumage and very bright resplendent colors the colors of red and orange and yellows and golds and some say purple too. And this magnificent bird would fly high into the sky, beaming its heart and its voice and its song in offering and dedication to the sun. This bird, of course, is none other than the phoenix. Now the phoenix is an ancient soul and the ancient embodiment of the authentic song of the self and of the heart. And we can track the phoenix back into ancient Egypt, into Arabia, into China, into a firebird of Russia, into Native American cultures. We can keep tracking this great bird back through time. And it takes different forms as it shapeshifts through time and space and through the cultures. But there's one thing that always remains true about the phoenix and that and why the phoenix has captured the imagination and the soul of its listeners throughout all the generations that this phoenix has the capacity to 
completely die into ash and be reborn. And so this then is the story of life and death and the power of rebirth. This is the story of each of us really going for it fully in the song of who we are, of surrendering fully, and of allowing our creativity and our energy to be reborn. So the phoenix is singing its song high in the sky and lots of creatures and people fall in love with the phoenix and they're always kind of chasing after the phoenix, trying to you know, catch a feather or just be near it. And so the people just are so attracted in all the beings. And the phoenix just keeps going further and further and says, no, I just want to sing my song. I just want to sing my song. And so he goes on, she goes on, they go on singing its song. And as the phoenix sings its song, some say for 500 years, some say for a thousand years, and some even say for close to 1500 years, the phoenix notices one day, oh gosh, I don't have the same kind of strength that I once had. I feel like I can't get my, my song through with the same kind of power and juice that I once had. And the phoenix begins to lament because its sole purpose is the activation of its heart to sing its song fully and to dedicate it to the spirit of the sun. So the phoenix goes through this despair, goes through this lamentation and begins to have a great inner inquiry. What can I do? I don't want to just give up and uh, not sing my song anymore. There must be a way. And as the phoenix goes through this, it starts to hear its own inner place of origin, call it home. And so the phoenix goes, wow, okay, I've traveled far and wide. I've gone across mountains and deserts and forests and oceans, and I have traveled so far, but now my origin place is calling me back. It's time to begin that journey back home. And so the phoenix begins to turn around and fly back to its origin tree. And the phoenix has a is said to have a very strong, keen sense of smell in particular. So as it's flying back across the mountains and the deserts and the forest and every all the different landscapes, it picks up fragrant spices and herbs and barks and resins all along the way, just gathering them for the, the fragrance. And think of this as like the fragrance of the soul and starts gathering, especially cinnamon bark, loves cinnamon, goes all the way back to its tree of origin and begins to craft a nest made out of all of these fragrant spices and herbs and the cinnamon bark too. And then it makes this fabulous nest and it's soul crafting, you know, it's like all of us each in our own soul crafting. And it remembers, oh, there was this one smell. It really uh, struck me and it went back and it gathered this sticky 
gooey resin. We know it by the name of myrrh, and it brings back the resin of the myrrh um, into its nest. And out of this resin, it begins to fashion an egg. Now, an egg is one of the most ancient and ubiquitous symbols for the power of rebirth and creativity and all that good stuff. So it fashions and fashions an egg made out of myrrh. And then it it places the egg alongside the nest. It climbs into the nest and it looks up to the sun now in its origin tree and in the soul crafted nest of its being. And what does it do? But what it loves most to do, it blazes its heart open to the sun and begins to sing this song, the feathers spreading and shimmering in the sunlight and all the animals and the little insects and everyone comes out to listen. And then after some time, the sun begins to take its rays and beam those rays with all luminous presence and with a ferocity too. And these sunbeams go blazing down onto the phoenix straight into the nest. The other animals and creatures begin to cower and they run back into hiding because they know how powerful the heat of the sun is. And then the phoenix doesn't shy back from it, doesn't resist it, doesn't do anything other than stand true and keep singing its song. And what happens is that those sun rays create a huge flaming energy and the phoenix is completely devoured by the rays of the sun as it bursts into flames. And all that is left is a pile of silvery ash. Now it's also said that these ashes have extraordinary healing energy, just like the tears of the phoenix are said to have extraordinary healing energy. And herein lies the power of death and total dissolution and no form can be seen in the silvery ash. Now the silvery ash also has connections to the power of the moon, to inner receptivity, to intuition, and also to fertility. And so everyone is in despair because now the glorious phoenix is gone. But after some time, there is a little movement in that ash and a little beak pops out and then a little tiny feather pops out, you know, and on this goes until rising out of that ash is the cutest little baby phoenix still trying to find its wingspan and its presence, but it starts to shake off that, that silvery ash and starts to stand up. And before you know it, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing, it's singing its song, and it is restored into its full miraculous form. And then, this is one of my favorite parts of the story. And then what does the phoenix do? Looks to that egg, that egg of rebirth, takes its beak, and starts to hollow out the egg of myrrh, hollows it out. And then in that hollow space, it scoops up the symbol of its own death, the silvery ash. And it pours the silvery ash into this egg of myrrh, seals it up, lifts it up with its great 
claws and talons and lifts it up in praise of the sun, flies so high, sings its song, and then travels again across deserts and mountains and forests and all that it does and carries this egg to Heliopolis, the ancient city that is the city of the sun, and goes through the gateways of the city of the sun, finds the central altar, which is none other than the altar of love in the root of our own heart and the heart, which is the city of sun within our own being. And it places that egg of its own death right there on the altar of love in the city of the sun. And it rises up and it continues to sing its song. And so this is repeated then, of course, every 500,000, maybe 1,500 years. And it is an extraordinary and powerful invitation for every single one of us to remember that we have a deep and soulful medicine here on earth. And each of us has a song of our soul. And we are asked you know, through this story to sing our song and to go for it fully and truly and also to be able to deeply recognize when it's time to really offer it up, surrender into the great mystery, back to this presence of the mystic, to surrender, get into that origin tree of our being, soul craft, our nest, climb inside and wait like with, with total presence for the dissolution of our being and the conscious descent that we must all go through and in cycles. It doesn't just happen once because through that conscious descent and that full dissolution and that full surrender, something new is yet waiting to be born through the rebirth of our voice, our creativity, our magic, and what we offer to this world. So sing your song. I have the hairs on my body are rising up, which I'm sure they are for all our listeners. Thank you for that delicious and profound treat. Ah. Uh. I wanted to just first of all say it's amazing you told that story because just yesterday one of my kids was asking me the story of the phoenix <laughs> as you know that's his namesake and I said to him you know I told him you know my version which is about half your version <laughs> and I said to him I have more notes on this and 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 readings honey because it's been like a year and so I will <laughs> I'll look at them and tell you so he'll listen to this and be riveted and I want to point out how this is what happens on the mystic path right these <laughs> moments of serendipity where you know you're on the mystic path when you say something and then an hour later someone finishes the sentence or something mm -hmm. comes up. I, I think of them as like the universe winking at me and <laughs> you and, and, and that's when you know. Oh, I love <laughs> so that. Thank you for that. And it's true. And mm -hmm. I wanted to segue into that really profound teaching to another aspect in the yoga world of Tantra because you spoke so beautifully 
And one of the things I love about what you share and I hold the vision of is going into the harder stuck, deeper, darker places. You know, so often in the spiritual communities and the yoga worlds, there's the airbrushing, the the not full spectrum of embodiment and life and and the lack of articulation of all of this. And that story so beautifully exemplifies this not shying away from harder things, from death even. And so I wondered if you could please, Siana, since you, like myself, are rooted in the tantric tradition, speak of tantra. It's such a buzzword right now in so many communities. And then also speak to how tantra really addresses the full spectrum of human experience. Okay, great. Thank you. And thank you, you know, to your great dedication as a yogini and um, for so many decades and with your family, your husband and your children, really inspired by all of you as deep practitioners and devotees. So thank you so much for that. Let's um, Tantra, so we'll break it down for a moment and then we can speak to it in different ways. Tantra is a Sanskrit word and the t- there's two parts, tan, and tra. The root word tan, so in Sanskrit you have all these verbal roots. The root word of the root understanding of tan means to stretch. And the understanding of the word tra is that which is an instrument, a device, a technique, a tool, we could say, and that which is related to the English word traverse. And so the word tantra means a tool, a technique, the power to stretch oneself, to grow oneself, to expand awareness is one of the ways that the tantric scholars love to speak of tantra. That whatever helps us to expand our awareness. And then there's a great metaphor, since we're talking about the language of the soul connected with Tantra, and that is a loom. And that if you think of a weaving and the instrument that is a loom, what the loom does is it takes the warp in the weft and these these threads that will become a tapestry, and it weaves them the so-called opposing opposite opposites it weaves them into this third thing that has never before been seen and is a gorgeous tapestry that comes after weaving for some time and so tantra is known as that which weaves and weaves the alchemical opposites and so then tantra as a view of the yoga tradition as a darshana, as a view of a a living stream of yoga traditions is that which helps us to weave both spirit and matter, heaven and earth, um, inner and outer, feminine and masculine, the, the transcendent and the imminent, the upward rising and the downward moving, the inside, outside, etc. So we get it. And then what happens with Tantra in the yoga tradition is it's saying 
look, we don't, it's not that we just have to uh, transcend to know ourselves as spirit. Of course, there is that aspect there, but it's also the power of embodiment and the integration of our being as human divine and divine human. And there is this, there's this wonderful, uh, there's this wonderful teacher named Andrew Harvey, and I was listening to him speak through a podcast or something, and he speaks of the moment that he gets to meet the Dalai Lama for the first time. And not only does he get to meet him, but he gets to have an interview with him and ask him something. And when the Dalai, when he sees the Dalai Lama, he actually kind of freezes for a moment and his mind empties and he can't, this very eloquent man cannot think of what to say to the Dalai Lama or what to ask him. And so what comes out of his mouth quite spontaneously is what, what is the meaning of life? You know, like the age old question. And as the story goes, the Dalai Lama just kind of paused, looked inside and then got this like bright kind of glimmer in his eyes and said, oh, it is to embody transcendence. It is to embody transcendence. And when I heard that, I thought, well, of course, you know, that's the heart of Tantra, that there is the full embodiment of the, the divine and the spirit that we are in human form, in real eminence here on earth so that we can do the work and show up for the alchemy at hand and really strengthen the vessel of who we are as a human being here on earth so that we can totally serve you know as love in action and if you know this is why i love tantra because it's pulling us into the embodied transcendence it's asking us to integrate ourselves not to just like try to get out and and be free you know to know freedom and liberation um, by getting out of the body or getting off this planet but to actually stand for freedom and real liberation here in our body on this planet and in connection interconnectedness with all beings and now this will take us onto you know quite a pathway because now opens up that true liberation you know and so yoga is dedicated to real freedom and unification and connection the root of yoga meaning to connect to yoke that these powers of yoga um, go hand in hand with the full activation of social justice and to stand with and for each other. That if others are suffering and there is inequity and only a privileged few get to be free, that is not the power the true power of yoga. And so Tantra then pulls us in to a real integration of our being, ask us to know the power of the night and the day, of the light and the dark, the play of the uh, a light and the shadow, ask us to, to have as much investment into the power of doing the deep hard work inside of ourselves as also as 
the prerequisite to a radical liberation and upliftment for all for all beings. So that's I could keep going, but I'm gonna stop there. <laughs> so beautiful and so many important points you touched on, but for our, our listeners, some of whom might not be familiar with the contextual term of Tantra, you know, it's a, a as Sianna said, a vision, a, a darshana is the Sanskrit word, a viewpoint and a, a whole philosophy and a whole myriad of practices as she so beautifully detailed to really yoke ourselves into our embodied life. So it's often referred to as the yoga of action and really ties into this idea of modern mystic. I love the story you told about the gentleman Andrew and the Dalai Lama, which I hadn't heard. Um, Similarly, when he said embodied transcendence, because so often we think of practices that are quote-unquote mystical or spiritual or internal even as incongruent with day-to-day life, with outer life, even with our bodies, that somehow they're less than or um, less powerful and potent, things like our bodies or our relationships with our loved ones. But Tantra really holds, like you said so eloquently, this idea actually, no, they're all gateways into the mystical. They're all gateways into liberation, quote unquote, transcendence. The more we can be present in these embodied ways, that is the path, right? Is that what I hear you saying? It's a beautiful, um, you know, summary and your own embodied wisdom is so perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I love this name of the school you founded called Rasa Yoga, which Rasa, the Sanskrit word, meaning nectar, sap, juice. And it comes too from the tantric tradition, no? It does. So it it begins with Rasa also means um, one of the words I really like to describe Rasa is essence. So the essence, the juice, the nectar, the sap, um, it even can mean like the the innermost feeling of things. So rasa begins with a, a great text called the Natya Shastra um, 2000 something years ago, and they're still fleshing out dates. I don't know that they'll ever have the exact, but it begins as a, a, by a great sage, Bharata Muni, who brings through the rasa theory into Indian drama and art. So it's the expression of the innermost kind of feelings that 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 move through a, a sequence of events to become what are called rasas. And they range from everything from our, our love and our passion and our joy to our anger, our fear and our disgust. So it's very... Um, all-encompassing of the full spectrum, you know, of the range of things that we experience through our feeling, feeling um, essences and gateways. And then about a thousand years later, uh, one of the foremost tantric sages by the name of Abhinavagupta picks up this rasa theory, and he invests quite a lot of time and teaching and creates these extraordinary commentaries on the rasa theory and pulls it through Tantra and into embodied life. 
And so that that great tantric sage then takes this and then rasa really enters the landscape of tantra and at a time that is a peak of tantric text. And so um, rasa, why I chose the name uh, for this yoga school, or rather, I, I would rather say that it chose me in a way, is because it acknowledges and gives us skills and techniques as well it, to acknowledge our emotions and to work with the energies of our emotions. And instead of labeling them as anger, bad, joy, good, you know, and going into this binary place, it's saying, wait, these are all the pulse of energies. This is all a spectrum of energy. Now it's going to be up to us as practitioners, as yogins, to relate with that energy, whether it's my most intense fear or anger or my greatest passion and courage, that it's up to me to relate with this energy. And then through that relationship, instead of reacting to it or from it, I'm going to respond with this energy in the most beneficial way. And so then each of the gateways of the rasas has big empowerments for us in our lives. And again, that will be through our fear, our anger, our disgust, as much as our courage, our compassion, and our joy. In this powerful rasa technology, which will be new to a lot of our listeners, there were first eight and then a ninth one added on later, correct? Could you please extrapolate on this? The first um, sage, Bharata Muni, a couple thousand years ago, gives us rasa theory with eight rasas. Then Abhinavagupta comes in about a thousand years later and adds the ninth. So let's do this, Sienna, if this works for you. I want to play ring around the rasa game. And I'll say the rasa... And then would you be willing to offer some ideas practically that our listeners can use in their day-to-day life to use this Rasa software as a technology for themselves? Yeah, we can play with that. Some of them will be obvious, I think, but I think it would be really helpful, especially the more challenging feelings that some Mm -hmm. of us have and how to work with those and alchemize those. I love your elucidation. So um, first we start with Shringara Rasa which I think of as love, romance, and beauty. Great. Yeah, so Sringara is the, it's the power of love, and it also holds the energy, love, beauty, everything you said, it and passion, and it holds the essence of Eros. And the essence of Eros as that awakening, fertile, creative energy, of life. And so when Eros is present, like in the, the, the springtime is highly connected with Eros. When Eros is present, then all of life starts to, you know, shapeshift in response to that inner Eros, that inner passion, that inner love 
of our being. And, you know, this, as we know, love moves mountains. And when we fall in love and when we experience love and when that love washes through us and, and we fall madly in love with ourselves, it's like, there's nothing like the spirit feels invincible and we will rise to the occasion when motivated by love, not like nothing else. And so it, it kind of leads the way. <laughs> Such a lovely description of a lovely rasa. And yet, how would we work with this rasa? Say we're walking down the streets and we see some trash or something that is antithetical to it, that isn't quote unquote beautiful. It can be that we are able to look to, to actually look to the trash and to ask ourselves, you know, like what, what is waking up inside of us as we see that trash so that we don't dismiss it, um, but that we like really see it. And then that, and to, to hold that big power of love, even in the midst of bearing witness to the things that are the most tragic for us to hold, that there is the uh, full embrace of the paradox and we're not gonna push it away, but we can be with it from a, from a resourced place and resource ourselves in the power of love. That's a, such a great point too, totally. It's right, seeing it and then I love it, like really digesting what is present and then choosing, right, what we do with that. Mm -hmm. It's really beautiful, thank you. Okay, Hasya. Hasya is the power of laughter and joy and mirth and what I what is like a lightness in our being so it's the remembrance that there's always like a little sense of humor at play um oftentimes and it's the buoyancy of our being and not to get you know overly inundated like to, to not make everything a burden and take it so seriously that we lose um the power of our joy and so it's mm. the, the power of it's the real power of joy and the kind of healing that happens when we can laugh and like really that deep heartfelt laughter and connect with each other in our relationships through the power of laughter Hmm. Laughter is medicine and this rasa and intention of levity and buoyancy within ourselves and within as many moments of our lives as is appropriate and as is possible truly is a practice that elevates the moment to moment experience of our lives if we remember to practice it. Excellent. Next, Virya Rasa. Virya Rasa is, it sources itself, it's known as the courageous Rasa, and it sources itself from the innermost strength of our being. And so um, every Rasa has a base kind of place called a Stai Baba. And the Stai Baba of the courage, the courageous expression is our innermost strength. And so Virya Rasa calls us forth as warriors, as warrioress, as um, someone who will really rise uh, in, in our power and 
tell the truth, be a truth teller, not turn away from the tough, tough stuff. Um, really face it and lean in to the uncomfortable, the most uncomfortable situations uh, to be able to lean into discomfort for real and to open up the brave space and open up the conversation, conversation, especially when it's highly confrontational. Mm. And so it's a, a real heroic aspect of our being. Powerful and such an important aspect of being a mystic, leaning into this energy of the warrior, warrior S. Love what you said about truth telling in light of this and in service of this, and also leaning into discomfort. As so often we're raised as young people and the messages we get from society around us do not encourage doing so in this collective culture of stuffing feelings down. Particularly we know in the masculine realms, this is often promoted. And then in the feminine spheres, often being labeled over-emotional, quote-unquote, or quote-unquote hysterical if we're emoting and articulating feelings. Discomfort also is information and truth-telling is empowering. And as long as we're doing it in a skillful way, then this is such a gift for others with whom we're in relationship with. And of course, holding space for others so that they can speak their truth and be truth tellers or holding space for others in their moments of discomfort also makes us a hero, heroine, and is a truly brave act. So good. Next up, Karuna. Yeah, so Karuna Rasa is known as the Rasa of Compassion, and its base place is uh, from inner sorrow. It's, it, it, it's initiates as the sadness and the inner sorrow of our being. And that there's grief here, there, uh, the, all of it is here, we feel deeply. And then as it gets worked and shaped, um, the gateways of empathy and, and through our vulnerability, like open up and we become increasingly empathic. And then the sadness and the inner sorrow is moving through this empathic gateway and it becomes the blessing energy of compassion so that, you know, through our sadness and through our sorrow, we will actually connect instead of separating ourselves and becoming uh, smaller or more hidden, we will actually open up through compassion and we will be able to find ways to connect more deeply with the heart of humanity and to deepen our, our, our shared humanity with each other through compassion. So compassion has always been one of the primary spiritual, you know, practices. It really is. I feel like that's one of the most quote unquote famous and so many threads of Eastern philosophies. And as you articulated perfectly, just how it, it really helps us connect um, to others and then of course even that self-compassion to ourselves mm -hmm. particularly when we're working with feelings and emotions and our psychological realms definitely <laughs> <laughs> raudra raudra is the rasa of the fierce of the ferocious and of anger 
And this is one of my favorite ones to really be with because um, oftentimes in, in spiritual practices, anger is seen as like, you know, you don't want to have anger. And so it can get pushed down, rejected, repressed, turned away from, um, and in favor of, of transcending it. However, anger, Raudra Rasa holds great power. And so here's, we kind of really start stepping into shadow work and a deep emotional intimacy, because if we don't acknowledge the energy of anger that is within us, then, and we shove it away or we turn away from it, it actually um, is taking up an extraordinary amount of space within us. And so what lives in the shadow is anything that we don't want to see and that we don't want to pay attention to. A lot of times in our shadow are, is our fears, our anger, but also our vulnerability, our um, compassion, our empathy. It, many things can be in the shadow. But a lot of times in the spiritual world, anger really gets shoved into the shadow. And, and then, and then the, what's happening is that the, the practitioner is spiritually bypassing because they're reaching for a spiritual teachings to get them away from the pain of their own anger, but they're not actually working with that energy of anger in their system. And so they bypass it and you, you cannot really integrate yourself and know your full power. So what happens with anger is that if left unattended to and unworked with, unprocessed, then when we get triggered in a big way, our anger can erupt. And it, when it gets out of us, because it's been unprocessed and left unattended to, it can act out in very bad behavior. And so it can be quite hostile and aggressive. And that's why people don't want to look at anger because our connection with it in our, in our lived experience in our minds is often that anger is hostile and aggressive and it's going to hurt us. So... What we have to do as really holistic practitioners is we have to say, this is this is part of me. So if it's here, then I must be able to be in a skillful relationship with it. When we start to work then with Raudra Rasa and with our anger, what happens is that it will give us the kind of um, capacity to have real clear boundaries, to to um, get the power in our voice and to be agents of change because real change, you know, there's many injustices. And if we don't want to see those injustices or name them and face them, then they just keep, then we become complicit in the perpetuation of the injustice. So the Raudra Rasa helps us to find our clear boundaries, the strength of our voice, what we stand for, what we're gonna you know, really give voice to and how we're gonna make change on this planet. Now we're in relationship. And then here's the real key to Raudra Rasa is that we can actually express our anger as an energy with the heart open versus shutting down, contracting, and closing our hearts, and then acting out with hostility and aggression because we haven't worked with our anger. 
Fabulous. So important. And so many things you said, I think will be so helpful to our listeners. Just want to highlight your articulation that these are, these are all energies and we all have these energies. And so, you know, how do we work with these energies so we can be embodied? Because when we're using all these energies that we might shy away from like fear and anger and these things we're not as you said really stepping into our full power our full potential and then we're not in turn serving the world as much as we could and i love how you talked about how we can turn um our attention towards anger and utilize it towards creating a better world too so thank you yeah, you're so welcome. Bayanika, Rasa. Bayanika, and you know, if we look at the English word emotions, and then you just put an e uh, dash motion, it's energy and motion. And so again, the mind, the ego will want to label this one's good, this one's bad, you know, and be in this polarized place. But it's really all uh, a spectrum of energy. So we are learning to relate with these energies, and then this as you keep as you keep offering to us to utilize in an effective way so bionica comes from uh, the word bia which means fear so this is the rasa of fear and it's connected to our anxieties our overwhelm the things that really frighten us and scare us and our our fear and as a storyteller of course i love joseph campbell and a teaching that's ascribed to him is the cave we fear to enter holds the treasure that we seek. The cave we fear to enter holds the treasure that we seek. And so similar to anger, if we repress the fear, deny the fear, cast out the fear, refuse to see our fears, refuse to work with our fears, refuse to name them and embrace them and work with them, then what happens is those fears, they grow, they get bigger, they become more persistent and resistant. And then all of a sudden we're operating uh, from a place of fear uh, and we are being controlled by our fear and we're making a bunch of choices rooted in unworked fear. That's just like pushing us along in unbeneficial ways. And until we turn towards our fears, name them, face them, embrace them, and work with them, then we cannot really, you know, uh, stand in the center of our being and the power of the full love that we are and make choices from this place. So it's really important to turn towards our fears. And as that teaching of Joseph Campbell says, you know, go into that cave you most fear to enter because surely therein lies the treasures that we seek. So if we follow, you know, Though that gateway and we keep tracking it and tracing it and what I refer to as shadow tracking, then it's going to lead us to a place that's going to give us insight and gifts and medicines that we could have never seen before. Incredibly revelatory and, and truly a gift, your words and what you said for fear is such an important energy. It's such a normal, natural, common denominational energy that as humans we all experience and at times of course it can be helpful and serves us to have it so that Joseph Campbell quote is perfect and there is the beautiful yogic practice and teaching to have a cup of tea with one's own fear sit down with it 
create a gentle warmth around it, listen to it, get to know it as a way to be present with it and when appropriate as a pathway to to alchemize it and to move through it and to work with it. Awesome. Bipatsa rasa. Bipatsa rasa. This is the rasa and the flavor of disgust. It's the things that re- are repulsive to us, uh, like the garbage on the street, you know, and the things that we don't really uh, want to pay attention to and uh, left unattended to. It can create straight, uh, extreme polarization and dehumanization. And so then when we get into like very strong disgust of like a whole human race and this extraordinary painful racism that exists on the planet, where is that coming from? Because people somehow convince themselves that they are repulsed by a like entire gorgeous be, you know human beings and it starts off in small ways and it grows and it grows and it grows until it becomes like a demon and so if we do not like really um look and take huge inquiry to where these things are coming from and tracking them and seeing how much like um is it is perpetuated by the systems by the institutions by the corporations of power that are trying to outline for people you like this you don't like that this is what you're repulsed by here's the choice you're going to make until we have no power because we're just being run by a greater institutionalized power that is doing it on purpose to keep us separated from each other and to keep us in a very big place of pain and then it puts power in the hands of a few. So for me, the uh, bibatsa is like every every little thing like um like a child, you know, that that goes out into nature and is um disgusted by a bug. Um th- this is a good example. And then out of their disgust, because they don't like it for whatever reason, they want to kill it, you know, or a human or an adult for that matter, you know, like uh, anyone who just sees that and then all of a sudden wants to kill it because it doesn't like it. That right there is like, whoa, wait a minute, Uh, turn towards that, take inventory, what is going on here? And then as you enter the heart of it, what you find is a miracle of life that touches your heart so deeply and that you see the things that you are um, disgusted about like in your own self and in the world and it starts to open it up like a miracle into this is life this is part of life this is all of it is part of it and i turn to it and something breaks open the heart and and I think I'll just stop there. <laughs> Perfect. And those feelings that we often deem as more challenging too, they're often learned. Like you said, whether it's subliminally through the message we get from our culture, society, and even our family, um, their understandings and what they've imbued in us from small ages. And so turning towards 
looking at those patternings that are deeply inlaid in ourselves is so helpful, so revelatory, and as is so beautifully stated, just open the heart. <laughs> Adbuta rasa. Adbuta rasa is the rasa of awe, enchantment, wonder, curiosity. It's like just being in awe of the miracle of life. And also that whatever circumstance uh, comes our way, that when we tap into Adbuta Rasa, that we can open up with extraordinary curiosity in our being. So we can suspend, suspend our judgments about something and actually turn with deep listening into the presence of what is and open ourselves with like a beginner's mind, a fresh new uh, canvas, a curiosity in our being, a wonder and awe and be like, wow, what is this going to reveal to me now in this moment? As if you've never even seen it before. And so it is the wonder and the enchantment of the soul. Love how you spoke about that. Because so much about, about being a modern mystic is is finding the magic in those seemingly mundane moments, right? Through this art of attention. And the word you used, enchantment, how do we stay enchanted with life? Really fully looking in the eyes of the person we're seeing and noticing the sparkle, seemingly innocuous things like feeling the fur on our pet's head, really totally fully and all the sensations of that, noticing that the little things are often the big things that keep us in this space of enchantment and a buddha. Shanta rasa, the last one. Shanta rasa, this is the ninth one that is added by Abhinavagupta uh, to the original eight. And shanta, at the heart of shanta is quiescence and what we know as peace, om shanti shanti shanti. And one of the ways that tantrikas can translate shanta rasa is the state of waking wakefulness. So it's a state of mind, a state of being, of waking wakefulness. And I love this because it invites us to the journey. It invites us into a process that it's not like an, a something, an end goal to be attained. And then, oh, I've got peace. I found peace. Now I'm done. It's a state, a circuitry, a journey of waking wakefulness. And what if every uh, moment and every experience and every day of our life, we could be with a state of waking wakefulness. How am I going to wake up today? And I come back to that one of the original uh, meanings or interpretations of Tantra is the way of expanding awareness deeply related to this, the waking wakefulness. Now, when we are present to what is with the expansion of our awareness, with a state of waking wakefulness, there is a kind of uh, inner groundedness and stabilization within our being, which I might refer to as the inner repose, the inner stillness within that action, the inner quiescence, the peace that can be tapped into even when it's like a storm. Wow. State of wakeful wakingness, waking up. That is what being a mystic is about. And it's for everyone. 
So I love that as a way to punctuate our time together, waking up and being present to the moments of our life and all the different tools and technologies of a modern mystic, of a yogi and yogini, right, are, are, are really holding space for this intentionality so that we've lived the moments of our life. Amazing. Well, Siana, you are simply a beacon of inspiration, authenticity, and goodness. And I'm so grateful for you sharing this profound download of wisdom with our listeners today. Can you please tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, your Rasa Yoga School, and your exceptional offerings? Oh, thanks, Kilkenny. Yes, thank you so much, everyone, for listening in. And I wish you many blessings for your lives and may you sincerely flourish and thrive. And if you'd like to be in touch, you can come to my website, sianasherman.com. Uh, Rasa Yoga has its own website and that is rasayoga.com. Then there's Facebook and Instagram and Instagram, my personal Instagram is Siana Sherman. And the Rasa Yoga Instagram is Rasa Yoga Collective. So those are some of the best ways. <laughs> Thank you so very much for sharing your embodied wisdom of how to be a mystic in this modern day epoch. Namaste. Thank you, Kilkenny. Great blessings. Thank you. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please write me a review on whichever platform you are listening. Also, check out my exciting Patreon page at patreon.com slash modernmysticlove, where I offer all sorts of uplifting yoga classes, meditation classes, and other amazing offerings from my guests on this podcast to all my incredible supporters. Even folks who donate at the $5 a month level are so appreciated as every cent helps this busy mama of three. Or check out my website, modernmystic.love, where you can purchase yoga videos of all levels with me ranging from gentle yoga up through advanced asana and also meditation videos there. Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste.